Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of June 12th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. So good to see you this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Recently, a few weeks ago, uh, we were visiting my mom's house up in northwest Arkansas. And I spotted in the uh, dining area a ceramic rooster. It's a relic from an earlier artistic period of time known as Brett's second grade. Now, in actuality, it actually looks like the work of someone not wholly incompetent. It also represents the heights of my artistic ceramic ex, uh, achievements. I'm sure I spent hours back when I was eight carefully working on that rooster, crafting it, so to speak, so that now, decades later, you can virtually hear it crow. Maybe not. Maybe some of you are, in fact, crafty. And by that I mean that you like arts and crafts and you're actually talented and skilled in that area. You have an eye for it. You're good at it. You're creative. You see possibilities where others don't. You spend time not only seeing what something could be, but you know how to transform it into what it is you see. Building it, molding it, crafting it again into something beautiful. I admire that. It's a skill that basically I don't have. Our Lord does, though. That creative, that building, that expressive nature is something that's found in the very reflection of God's, in God's nature itself. It's reflected in His creation, in His image. And God has not finished with His creativity, by the way. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not the end of God's creative work. He is still in the process of crafting and molding and making. This past week during vacation Bible school, our theme verse was Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I'd like to read that along with the verses that immediately precede it this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Heavenly Father, as we look at the scripture, as we look at some of the things that we taught and studied this past week during vacation Bible school, Father, would you focus our minds upon you and what you have done in the, the rich grace 
you have offered us. Lord, I pray that this morning we see and encounter you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has been detailing the activity of God in our salvation. He describes God choosing and redeeming and forgiving us. He goes on to talk about the role of the Spirit who seals us in our salvation. And having done all that in chapter 1, Paul begins to elaborate on the supremacy of Christ in creation. He then in this chapter begins to describe what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And now it's a demonstration of God's immense grace and mercy. So having talked about Ephesians 2.10 last week, this idea of being created in Christ, designed for God's purpose, and also in light of the series on the church we've been doing the last few weeks, it seemed like a good opportunity to spend some time in this passage this morning. We've seen over the past few weeks as we begin our series on the church that we are, in 1 Peter chapter 2 we saw, that we are a people of faith. That is, that our lives are, are centered around and founded upon the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, died on a cross for our sins, and came back to life, resurrected. Therefore, making it possible for you and I to live again as well, if we take God at His word. That is, faith. We are a people who take God at His word. That's what it means to be a people of faith. We are a people of fellowship. That is, we, you and I, have a shared faith. We don't just share a series of beliefs, but we share the very life, the eternity, the purpose that results from life in Christ, from that faith, all that Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. In fact, later in Ephesians, Paul expresses it this way. He says that we share one body, one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We share this. We are a people of fellowship. Last week we saw that we are a people of worship. That's we are made for the purpose of glorifying and knowing God. And through our faith and through our obedience, through our love for Him and for one another, through our speech, our music, our lives, pointing others to the Heavenly Father. Well, in our passage today, we see that that kind of continues. We're kind of talking about that again this morning as we find out that we are, this morning, a people, not only just of faith and of fellowship and of worship, we are a people who have been crafted, a people who have been made. Now, this idea shows up at least twice in our passage this morning. First of all, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 5. It says that you and I, we were dead in our transgressions, but in Christ and God we have been what? Made alive. Well, that literally has the idea of brought to life. Made alive, birthed, if you will. That's the idea. You and I have been made alive. Now, you may think this morning of John chapter 3. Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. John chapter 5, Jesus says, the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. He's talking about that in the context of equating Himself with the Father in salvation and life and in judgment. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. We are those who have been made alive, spiritually sent, in a spiritual sense. But not just that. Because Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, those who are in Christ will also one day experience a physical resurrection. That is, there will be a day you and I are going to physically die at some point, but there will be a day for those who are in Christ when, yes, our actual bodies will resurrect, when we will be alive once again, flesh and bone in the way that Christ was. It'll be different than what you're used to now. It'll be a glorified body. I don't know all the details, but I got a hunch it'll be really, really cool. I might be able to dunk a basketball on that. Don't know about you, but I think that's a kind of a cool deal. I might even be able to dance. I don't know about you, but I think that's a cool deal. Because right now, I can't. We, will be, we are made alive. Now, we need the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because we also all have rebelled against that design, against the design that God gave us as, his, as our creator. So God has been about the business since our rebellion. This is what Paul is ultimately referring to here in Ephesians. God's been about the business of recreating us, renewing us, giving us a new life, resurrecting, reforming us. So the sequence is this. God created and gave life. Mankind rebelled, separated himself from the God who gave life, thus resulting in spiritual and in physical death, with no hope following either. But because of the work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb, we have not only been given spiritual life, but we will have a physical resurrection as well. We need to be made alive because we cannot do this. We cannot do the work of resurrection on our own. We can't be birthed, if you will, into a new life on our own. We can't give ourselves our own life. Look at Paul's description of us here in chapter 2, apart from Christ. Verse 1, he says, you were, what's the word? Dead. Verse Five, we were dead. This is how the Scriptures describe us. Dead in our sin, dead in the consequences of our sin. So guess what we need? We need help. Like many of you, I have first-hand experience with needing and getting surgery. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a number of you that have had surgery through the years. One thing that never occurred to me when I, last time I got surgery a few years ago, it never occurred to me to Google it, figure out how to do it, pick up a knife, and do it myself. It never occurred to me to do that. Now, I will say this. I did Google it. <laughs> I, I, did, I did try to find a little bit more of what's going on. But it never occurred to me to pick up a scalpel and to operate on myself. Now, that would be somewhat self-obvious. It should be obvious why we wouldn't want to do that, right? Because we need, when our bodies are, are hurting, and we need outside help. 
Without that surgery, without that doctor, there's no healing. What you and I need, though, even to a greater degree, is not even surgery, spiritually speaking. We need to be resuscitated. If I can't do surgery on myself, I for sure can't do CPR on myself. That would be, well, pointless. You think that's hard? Try breathing into your own nose. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what you and I need is not to become better people. We don't need to move from being dead to better looking dead. We need to become alive. Jesus did not die on a cross and resurrect to improve our lives. He did those things to give us a new life. He didn't die and rise again to inspire you to a moral life. He died and rose again to make you eternally alive. We need an outside source. We need one who knows how and has the power to create and sustain and renew life. You and I, we can't do that. No human can do that. Only God does that. It's something that's done to us. We are made alive. Now, he uses in verse 10, the verse that we used in Vacation Bible School this week, a slightly different word. He uses the word in verse 10 that we are his workmanship. It has the idea of being crafted, molded. Uh, the illustration I used earlier about making ceramics, that would be an appropriate term to use here. It's the concept of making something the way you and I might make something. In fact, you'll see this idea, this description all throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is described as God had formed him, made him, crafted him, if you will, from the dust of the earth. The physical life God gave him. Psalm 139, David talks about how we are being crafted and formed by God. In fact, let me, I want to read a couple of these things for you. Psalm 139, uh, probably a psalm that you've at least heard portions of through the years. Verses 13, beginning of verse 13, David says this, You, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, the prophet, in speaking about the work of God and calling him, says this, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Job 31, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44, all these talk about how God forms, crafts, molds, makes us. As we live and breathe, so to speak, you could say, you and I are creations of the very handiwork of God. We are His workmanship. Now, as we said a while ago, we have taken that workmanship of, Christ, of God and we have spoiled it with sin. And so what happens is through Christ is we have been given new life and a new birth, born again, if you will, that just as God crafted us before, He is now recrafting us Again, we are formed. We are His workmanship. And look at this. 
Verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, he even gives us the purpose for this, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. He tells us earlier in this passage that we have, verse, uh, that we have uh, been created for these good works so that we can point people or show people the surpassing richness of God's grace. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in His mercy, because of His great love with which with He loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, together with Christ. And there's a little, there's a little you may have a parenthesis there. It says, by grace you have been saved. It's almost like Paul is writing this and just has to stop. So I'm, I'm going to read this the way I think Paul would have been thinking it when he wrote it. He said, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He can't help himself. As Paul thinks about this stuff, he's just getting overwhelmed with the, 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 the majesty and the, 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 the scope of God's grace. And having said that, he says, raise us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I have been made alive and created to be a craftsman, art project, if you will, of God for this purpose, so that we in our lives, not just now, but for all eternity, will display the surpassing richness of God's grace. So we have this purpose, to show the surpassing riches of God's grace in our lives and for the good works prepared beforehand. We have been made alive for these things. Now, by the way, let me, let me take a little note here. Let me ask you a question. How can we reveal God's rich grace if we take credit for our salvation? You go, well, nobody takes credit for our salvation. I know you don't do that on purpose. But you see, here's the thing that Paul's trying to get to in Romans, or Ephesians chapter 2. He says, it's essentially this, if we have earned salvation, if you and I have somehow earned or deserved or have merited in our minds the favor of God, if we've done something, if you look at the people around you, look at this world around you, you go, you know what? Yeah, I'm kind of better. We don't want to say it out loud, but we sometimes look at other people and think, yeah, I'm better. Or sometimes we think this. Well, I've done this, 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 and this. I deserve some good stuff. I've earned it. This was one of the more crass examples through the years. I was a music minister at church a long time ago, and uh, we were in the process of a church of we, we had a, a blended worship service, much like we do here, kind of a, a blend of some traditional hymns and some newer songs. And we had a young couple visiting the church that wanted more of the new songs, didn't want some of the older hymns. Came up to me at a football game. I'm at a high school football game. This individual came up to me and said, I want to sing this song. It was a song that we weren't at that point in time singing. And I said, well, I don't know. She goes, well, I tithe. Don't I get a chance to pick out some songs too? I said, um... I think you've misunderstood something here. Now, it wasn't that her opinion was irrelevant. It wasn't that her desire wasn't uh, worth expressing. But the attitude behind it was this. I paid my money. I get to pick a song. 
I earn the right by writing a check to tell you what to do. And sometimes if we're not careful, we come to God with this idea that I have somehow done something. I've earned a little bit of favor. I've, I'm better. I'm moral. I haven't really killed anybody. I've not done anything big. So I should get what I ask for, right? How can God receive the glory for grace when we think we have earned what we get? That is called robbing God of His glory to take credit for our salvation or to what we think we have earned. Our pride, our reliance upon ourselves robs God of what is rightfully His. And it also robs the world of seeing God's in all his glory. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, in the Old Testament, God scolds Israel for robbing him. And here's what he says here. Malachi 3, 8, he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, yes, that passage is talking about a tithe. But in the same way that Israel was robbing God of tithes by not giving to him a proper sacrifice of the first of all they had, we sometimes rob God of his glory by claiming credit for things that we think we've done that he has in fact done. When we take credit for what God has done, we are robbing God as surely as the Israelites were robbing God of tithes. We're taking credit for what God has done. When we claim credit through our attitude or our actions or our words, we think of ourselves as better than someone else for whatever reason. Whenever we feel as if we have somehow deserved God's blessings, that we are entitled to some measure of good circumstances because we have lived a good life, we are robbing God of His glory. We are taking and keeping for ourselves that which is His. When we take the very actions and the deeds that we are created to do, those good things, and the things that God breathed us life to do, and we take credit for them or take pride in them, we are guilty of robbing God of glory that belongs only to Him. Now, in that Malachi passage, God told the people of Israel, if you will simply bring your sacrifice, you will bring your tithe to me, you will find that I will open up a window of heaven to you on blessings. And what does Paul say here in Ephesians chapter 2 about the amount of grace that God has for us? If we will just set aside our pride and in humility acknowledge that our salvation is completely and wholly dependent upon the activity of God, if we will open ourselves up to His grace, what we'll find is that there's a never-ending wealth of infinite supply of God's grace. You cannot run it out. God's grace is that deep and that abundant. There is sometimes confusion on this point. Sometimes we think, there's some, there, there, there are some who think that we are made right or justified in front of God by what we have done, our works, if you will. But a person is not justified by his works. He's not made right by what he does, but by the works of Christ that become ours through 
faith. So you and I, we are made for doing good things. That is, we are created, we are justified, we are saved, we are crafted to show the depth and the riches of God's grace through the good deeds, if you will, that Paul's talking about here in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. But if we turn around and take credit for it, we are defeating the very thing for which we were created. The exceeding riches of His grace. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, So is it with the grace of God, He has as much grace as you want. And He has a great deal more than that. The Lord has as much grace as a whole universe will require, but He has even vastly more. He overflows. All the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish Him or even diminish His storehouse of mercy. Part of the things I think sometimes we run into is that you and I know that we can exhaust one another's grace. Can't we? Some of us, well, some of us have more grace than others. Let's just be honest. Some of us have more mercy than others. But the truth is, you and I know that no matter how well-intentioned someone is, no matter maybe even how well-intentioned we are, Sometimes we get tired of exercising grace towards other people, don't we? And we know that, and we know there's a, an, an end to human grace. And then we take that idea and go, okay, I know that I've pushed it too far with this person, or they've pushed it too far with me, and I, I know my limits, I know there's a limit there. And we take that idea, however unintentionally, and we put it upon God and think to ourselves, there must be a limit to God's grace. But with God, there is none. His grace far surpasses anything that you and I can possibly ever imagined. Because of the infinite nature of God's grace, I'm able to enjoy His blessings. I'm able to enjoy the talents, the growth, the results of His work in my life without being proud and arrogant. I can say, hopefully you can as well, I used to be this way, but things have changed through God's grace. And I can do that without necessarily elevating myself and enjoy that. Enjoy that in others around me as well. Sometimes we want people to accept our change, but we, want, we don't want to accept their change. God gives grace to other people as well. God's infinite grace means that His work in others or in myself is not limited or doesn't take away from the work he's doing in somebody else. In other words, God can be incredibly gracious to me, and it doesn't take away from the God's grace towards you. And God can be gracious towards somebody else, and it doesn't mean he's got less grace to give to me. There's grace, an abundant grace. It also means, by the way, that I cannot claim to be beyond God's grace. We tend to think of pride in terms of arrogance or taking credit for things that aren't mine to claim. But another expression of self-centeredness, if you will, is the idea that somehow I'm too bad or I'm beyond God's grace, as if the God who created the universe can't help you. If you think that's the case, then you have more pride than the rest of us combined. See, see how see, that's an expression of pride? To think that you're beyond God's grace? God can create. He can redeem, but He can't do it for me? So, we have this abundance of God's grace. And we, you and I, are created, made alive, 
created, crafted for these good works that will display the great grace of God. So what are these good works that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 2.10? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we know from earlier is to display God's grace. So what are these good works? Anything that points and reveals and points to God. Now, if we were to look throughout all of Scripture and find things that describe who God is, we'd have a long list, wouldn't we? But let's pick out a couple of the, the, the ones that are the most prominent. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. By being holy, we can point to God. Not by being arrogant, not by being self-righteous, but by being holy. By um, being loving and gracious and merciful. By being patient and kind. You know, there's a whole fruit of the Spirit thing. That works. God is a, a, by the way, God is a going God. He is a missionary God. He's a God who didn't sit up there in heaven and wait for us to, to come to Him. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, He died for us. In other words, He didn't wait for us to make the first move. He came to us. So guess what should be descriptive of our good works? Those who are proactive in doing good, who are proactive in forgiving, who are proactive in graciousness, who are proactive in going towards others so that they can be forgiven and know the life that comes through the gospel. This is the, these are some of the good works that, that we've been saved to do. By the way, this process, this, this demonstrating, this process of demonstrating God's surpassing grace through good deeds, that's Romans 12.1. That's also what we called worship last week. It's part of worship. It's called living a life that reflects the character, the power, the traits of the Father. A life that looks like the one Jesus lived. I can't do that. I know. I can't either on my own. That's why our job is to abide in Him, to dwell with Him, to have Him dwell within us, to think on Him, to meditate on Him, to talk to Him, to worship, to speak about Him and to Him. To do this with ourselves and towards one another and to those who don't know Him. The bottom line is all this. In this description of God's work in Ephesians chapter 2, we, you and I, are the object of God's work. We are the receivers, the ones who are being acted upon. He is the one doing the stuff. He is the subject, if you will. He is the originator. We are the ones, we are the receivers. This is God's work that we are a part of, not our own work. The life we possess is not even ours. It's been given to us. So what of God did others see in you this past week? That's a question. If we were saved, you and I, if we were made alive, if we were crafted and formed so that we could live out these good deeds so that in turn people would look at those things and go, wow, isn't God tremendous? What did the world around you see about God through you this past week? The life we possess is not our own. As a church, what did we reveal about God this week? You and I, we have been lovingly, meticulously crafted and formed. You and I, we have been given and made alive so that 
we can live lives that speak to and point out to the unsurpassed grace of God. We are a people crafted to show God's grace.